Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Facebook Breakup. We open with an interpretation of Radiohead's Paranoid Android by jazz pianist Brad Meldow. In March of 2014, it was reported that the National Security Agency had aggressively accelerated its hacking initiatives to, quote, allow the current implant network to scale to large size by creating a system that does automated control implants by groups instead of individually. Much of this was done via fake Facebook servers. Here's what Mark Zuckerberg said about that on Facebook. Quote, The U.S. government should be the champion for the Internet, not a threat. They need to be much more transparent about what they're doing or otherwise people will believe the worst. The Internet works because most people and companies do the same. We work together to create this secure environment and make our shared space even better for the world. This is why I've been so confused and frustrated by the repeated reports of the behavior of the U.S. government. When our engineers work tirelessly to improve security, we imagine we're protecting you against criminals, not our own government." Unquote. That same Mark Zuckerberg, the face of Facebook, recently testified in front of Congress to answer questions about how the voter profiling company Cambridge Analytica harvested the data of more than 87 million Facebook users without their permission. It turns out that many, many other entities, academic, commercial, governmental, could have grabbed that data under previous Facebook policies. In a New York Times op-ed, Harvard professor Jonathan Zittrain wrote, quote, The Cambridge Analytica dataset from Facebook is itself but a lake within an ocean, a clarifying example of a pervasive but invisible ecosystem where thousands of firms possess billions of data points across hundreds of millions of people and are able to do lots with it under the public radar, unquote. Today's guest is Will Davies, a political economist at Goldsmiths University of London and author of The Happiness Industry. His work explores the way in which economics influences our understanding of politics, society, and ourselves. Davies has written in the London Review of Books that, quote, destroying privacy in ever more adventurous ways is what Facebook does. But just as environmentalists demand that the fossil fuel industry leave it in the ground, the ultimate demand to Silicon Valley should be, leave it in our heads, unquote. Throughout his recent congressional testimony, Zuckerberg repeatedly apologized for allowing companies like Cambridge Analytica to access the personal data of Facebook users and, as often, promised to do a better job. But what kind of better job can we imagine if we allow Facebook, Google, and Amazon access to our random thoughts and our very imaginations? How is it that we trust our privacy to our surveillance capitalists? Recall in 2010 it was reported that in 2004, a then 19-year-old Mark Zuckerberg and a friend had this interaction via instant message shortly after the launch of the Facebook in his dorm room. Zuckerberg, yeah, so if you ever need info about anyone at Harvard, just ask. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, addresses, SNS. Unnamed friend. What? How'd you manage that one? Zuckerberg. People just submitted it. I don't know why. They trust me, dumb f***s. Still, the real villain, Davies asserts, is a ruthless economic logic that insists on inspecting ever more of our thoughts, feelings, and relationships. What's the best way to thwart this? He suggests antitrust laws. But it's hard to consider that the U.S. Congress, full of millionaire industry flunkies, or a Supreme Court crowded with Federalist Society credentials will have any interest in 
breaking up our now too-big-to-fail data companies. And now, Facebook Breakup on Interchange on WFHB. If you don't mind, can you sketch in the Cambridge Analytica kerfuffle, the revelation that seems to have really reached critical mass lately? Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the the core of the the issue is that there's this um, company um, called Cambridge Analytica that has these ties to other aspects of uh, other companies, uh, most importantly SCL, um, and that um, the private equity billionaire Robert Mercer has poured money into some of these um, ventures. Uh, he has a, a political agenda. People like Jane Mayer and, 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 and other investigative reporters have, 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 have written about this in, in the States. Um, but so you have this company. It's, it's been a little bit shady. It, it spent some years. Clearly, we now are now learning more and more day by day, learning about the kinds of contracts that it's held for running kind of, you know, targeted advertising campaigns, um, psychometric profiling of, of populations. It's done a lot of this um, in the developing world, um, in Africa and um, uh, and elsewhere. Um, and um, there was some uncertainty as to whether or not it was involved in the Brexit campaign. We know that it was involved in the Trump campaign. And one of the reasons why it was involved in the Trump campaign in 2016 was that Steve Bannon, who was the campaign manager and had connections to Robert Mercer through Breitbart, which Robert Mercer um, funds as well, uh, that Steve Bannon was on the board of Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is, is based in Cambridge, UK, not Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, it, um, uh, it, it exactly where it got its its um, technical skills and know-how from is I'm not entirely clear about. I mean, it's it's a sort of you know partly one of the problems with the company is that it, it brags a lot about what it can do and then it backs down once it comes under pressure and says it can't do it actually after all. But anyway, it um, it ran it did a lot of the data analysis for the Trump campaign in 2016. Um, inevitably, it, it um, sort of took lots and lots of credit for this uh, for, for the success of the Trump campaign. What has emerged in the last month, and the Observer newspaper in the UK has been following them, chasing them, trying to dig up something on them for about a year, but not really coming up with anything very, very crunchy or tangible. What emerged in the last sort of couple of weeks was that um, Cambridge Analytica um, effectively worked with a Cambridge University psychologist called Alexander Kogan, who had also built an app in 2014 that uh, had been a plug-in for Facebook, which had been a kind of psychological profiling tool that people could use purely for sort of fun. And um, something like, um, what was it, sort of 250,000 Americans used this app, but it's kind of, because Facebook being what it is, it also collected information on all of their friends. One way or the other, Alexander Kogan found himself in possession of data on 50 million Americans from 2014, and he gave this data to Cambridge Analytica, which is a, a breach of um, of this is a, a flagrant breach of, of privacy regulations. But on the other hand, there was also the problem, which was that, you know, I mean, people using this app on Facebook, this this plug-in thing, they just kind of were doing it for fun. They weren't thinking about who was getting the data anyway. There's been loads of these apps floating around. 
Um, and the uh, Wall Street Journal did an investigation of them way back in 2010 of these kind of plugins that you see in your Facebook feed where you kind of fill in a quiz and so on and so on. And they found that this data was being used in all sorts of flagrant ways by for advertising and then being sold on and all this kind of stuff. So there's clearly a massive sort of gray market in, in data that's been around for a long time. And let's not forget that, you know, Facebook's entire kind of business is based on the idea that they can sort of just scrape data from their two billion users they now have around the world could sort of day in day out minute in minute out and they can use this for to, to sell advertising so none of that should have been too shocking i think the the point was that firstly kogan passed the data on to cambridge analytica cambridge analytica put it to work for the trump campaign a couple of years later to what extent it was useful for them is, is not entirely clear but that's what happened um the other thing that has that the scandal in the uk is that it's really not clear whether or not maybe um, some money was diverted towards some data analysis work, maybe not by Cambridge Analytica, but maybe by another of these kind of Mercer-related data companies called AIQ in Canada, and that they may have done some additional work for the Brexit campaign that may have uh, pro-Brexit campaign that may have tipped them over the limit of their. Of, of, of spending regulations that were enforced to try and make the, the, the referendum fair. So now people are saying, was the referendum unfair? In which case do we need to rerun the referendum and this sort of thing? So what I would say is that there's, there's a lot of sort of, you know, gray market activity. There's a shady libertarian billionaire in the background in the form of Robert Mercer. There are some unpleasant sort of outright figures like Bannon in the mix. There are some kind of propaganda tools um, that have been trialed all over the world. There's a a very boastful and rather sort of um, opaque company of Cambridge Analytica. But then most of all, there's this great hulk of Facebook that gobbles up, you know, 50 minutes of of 2 billion people's attention every single day um, and doesn't seem to really have any sort of sort of sense of, of, I mean, Zuckerberg kind of wants everyone to think he's a nice guy, but like, what the hell, how, how did we get into this situation in the first place where we allowed that company to have all this power, leaving aside the, you know, the outright and the libertarians and the sort of, you know, slightly kind of, um, uh, the, the sort of marketing bullshit of Cambridge Analytica. There's, you know, there's, there's Facebook is the kind of, you know, is, 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 is the real, Albert, is the real sort of monster in amongst all of this. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking with Will Davies, a political economist and author of The Happiness Industry and The Limits of Neoliberalism, about Facebook, surveillance, and data monopolies. This is what you get when you Hmm. So, uh, thank you for doing that. That's, uh, that. that's been the issue, I think, is when you talk about uh, kind of looking at the circus or being distracted by the circus and forgetting that this is, uh, that, as you said, 50 million, um, records or people having their data, uh, scraped in this particular way is a commonplace in some sense. Maybe not that to that extent, but who knows, um, what's, what happens, what happens. It's one of those things that we've lost all capacity to know how and where and when and why we're being, um, tracked. I guess if one assumes we're tracked at all times, then there are lots of difficult philosophical life, you know, organizing social questions that we need to have been answering or thinking about a long time ago and not just letting people like uh, Cass Sunstein or Martha Nussbaum talk about nudging us <laughs> or things like that. So, um, yeah. 
you know, so that is the question, you know, so your, your piece in the LRB, I, you know, it comes down to, we need to break up big monopolies, right? I mean, I don't know what else we do. Um, well, so there were various lines of this. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I was trying to get across was that people sort of talk about, oh, we need to have better kind of data protection laws so that uh, yeah. this kind of thing doesn't happen. But it's like, well, data protection laws would mean, you know, that, okay, so maybe this guy Kogan doesn't get hold of this data and give it pass it on to Cambridge Analytica. But all of that data would still, you know, there would still be right. a company that was, that was able to um, access the eyeballs of two billion people for an average of, of 50 minutes per day. Uh, and with all of the power that goes with that and all of the power that gives them over newspapers and, uh, you know, the power they have over the advertising market and, and all of the other kind of related forms of power that come from that. Um, what I'm trying to avoid, people, what I, my, my, the argument in my piece is against saying, you know, that, yes, people are the kind of, you know, these companies are the custodians of our data. Therefore, they need to look after it properly. It's like, no, we, you know, we, we can't. I mean, the problem is that if even if Facebook was obeying the law and doing everything properly and being ethical and all that kind of stuff and, you know, and being much clearer about their, their you know, privacy rules and all that sort of stuff, you still have this great big problem, which is that you've got this massive concentration um, of, of power formed from the capacity to su- surveil us across several different, you know, more and more and more domains of our lives. And Amazon is a similar problem. You know, Amazon wants to have these buttons all over our houses and, and an Alexa in our kitchen so that every time we ever sort of think we want anything, it'll just, you know, the desire will just go straight into Amazon servers and then the product will arrive the next day from a kind of Amazon drone or whatever the hell <laughs> they're planning. You know? It's a utopia. Um, actually, but... Um, and so, you know, so again, there's this idea that, that they can sort of mediate our relationship between ourselves and the world in nearly every way. And Google is no better either. So, I mean, you know, we, we can't say, oh, these people need to keep doing what they're doing, but they need to do it more ethically and with greater respect for our data privacy and, and the rules. I mean, like that, that cannot be adequate because, I mean, they'll go, you know, Zuckerberg will happily take out these ads in newspapers and go, oh, I'm going to start looking after your data better and stuff. It's like, what if I don't want you to have my data? What if, you know, why? I mean, of course I can, I can leave Facebook. That's so, of course I can leave Facebook. But, um, and then there's a sort of another line, which is, oh, the, the data belongs to us. So we should be sort of, you know, they mean, uh, 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 there are very credible people who, who, who advanced that, that line, people like Evgeny Morozov, who is sort of quite a sort of strong voice in the sort of, you know, this is a data ownership issue. But at the same time, I mean, I suppose my, this is maybe a bit kind of utopian or some people would see it as Luddite or, or something. But I mean, to me, I'm not even sure this data is, is a good thing in itself. You know, like I'm not even mm-hmm. sure that this data needs to exist. Um, and if this data couldn't, I mean, in a way, people go, oh, but this data is really valuable. We need to find a better way of using it. So, no, I, I would actually like to destroy the value of this data. This is like a sort of, this is a type of value that I'm not sure society benefits from. And if it just, if it turned out that, you know, splitting Amazon and Google and Facebook into, into small chunks meant that the data was not so valuable any longer because it, it couldn't all be integrated into these kind of, sort of very rich profiles, I would say that's a good thing, you know. So, and if it turned out that occasionally, you know, someone didn't know what kind of, sort of toilet roll I needed before I needed it sort of thing, I would say, well, maybe that's, you know, an aspect of the human condition that I'm quite happy to hang on to, you know, without sort of Jeff Bezos sort of wanting to take that off my hands for me, you know. So, um, um, yeah. <laughs> so in a way, although, I mean, antitrust is a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a, I'm not, I don't know how you would sort of start that as an antitrust agenda. There are ideas around it. I mean, there are people at, you know, the Open Markets Institute in Washington, D.C. who sort of write about this kind of thing. There are lawyers like Frank Pasquale who, who are sort of writing about different ways in which platforms can be regulated as 
as public utilities. I mean, there are lawyers trying to think about this kind of thing. At the moment, the, the you know, the, the FTC and the DOJ in, in, in Washington, D.C. Are, are, are very toothless institutions for a mixture of kind of ideological and technocratic reasons. But I do think that we do need to keep our, our, our eyes on the fact that, you know, somehow we've allowed our, 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 our political, social and psychological lives to become sort of um, controlled by some by a very small number of, 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 of entities. And we, we just don't want them controlled at all. It's not that we want them controlled more responsibly. We just don't want them that level of control in, in our society would be my position. It's time for a break. This is Electioneering by Radiohead off of OK Computer. More with political economist Will Davies on Cambridge Analytica when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storr. Our show is Facebook Breaker with political economist Will Davis. In this segment, is there any difference between Facebook data and the data collected on you in more official or public capacities, like data shared on illnesses by corporate and private hospitals or student data at universities? And is the bad or good of data collection only a concern depending on your political persuasion? one of those things that confuses me again to try to understand uh, you talked about laws earlier trying to understand how whatever protections we have in various countries uh, with our data but with our privacy again it's one of those things that I, I guess I attach privacy to to people or personhoods in some sense and mm. trying to understand 
uh, um, you know, U.S. regulations like the FERPA reg- regulations, which are education regulations, right? That you can't share student data even with parents of children. Uh, HIPAA re- regulations in the healthcare industry, right? You can't, uh, you have to protect that data from, I don't know from whom. But then one of the questions that I've always asked with any of these things, you know, that as you say already, that data is there. It's there, it's there to serve somebody in the first place, right? A lot of times as parents too, we've been, uh, pretty much walked into the data road, uh, via school systems too, who gather and collect data for states and how they track, uh, particular things about grades, particular things about mm-hmm. poverty, uh, particular yeah. things about, um, diseases, uh, all sorts of things that we, that sound good. Right. When you t- we we need to track disease diseases in our in our state. You know, we need to know when there's going to be an outbreak, and you know all these things that make it sound really nice that that you're paying attention to us uh, as a, as a social good. But uh, those all still are a part of that large bucket of data that you talk about. Sure. That 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 what is it? What do we do with it? What's it for? Sure. It's it's it almost never sounds. Um, after you think about it, it doesn't sound so good. Um, yeah. so. I mean, and of course, I mean, there's, there's a, there is an issue about kind of, you know, we, what are the entities that, 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 that are collecting the data and how are they governed? So, I mean, there's also, I mean, another, another sort of move in all of this is, is what's called platform cooperativism, which is a sort of, you know, if you had a sort of a, a governance structure for platforms, which, which put them to the, some sort of social good, um, and had different levels of transparency that that would be a that would be a better um alternative and i and i don't disagree with that but i think the yeah i mean i think the problem is that um this idea that sort of data is data is a is a kind of you know people there's this analogy which i i talk about in in the lrb piece and criticize which is you know data is the new oil of the economy you know it's the thing that makes everything else work it's like well this is a sort of dangerous analogy to think that there's just some this sort of natural good that kind of flows <laughs> through the pipelines and 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 sort of is is immune to to sort of you know because i mean oil if i have a bucket of oil or if you know sort of rex tillerson has a bucket of oil it's the same bucket of oil whereas you know like the the the, the data the value of data de- changes depends on on how it's combined with other data and on who has the capacity to analyze it and who has the capacity to 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 keep it secret and all that kind of stuff i mean a lot of the value of data depends on all of the kind of power structures uh, I'm not saying that there isn't power structures connected to oil. Obviously, there are, but the but the but the entity itself is something that is that is a kind of a given, and then people try and protect it and sort of you know and and control it and all that kind of stuff. But data isn't really like that. I mean, data is it, the, you know the value of data depends partly on 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 one's capacity to sort of you know combine it with other bits of data and 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 to sort of make sense of it in certain ways, um, and that depends partly on the kind of governance structures that. That, that, that control it. And I think that, you know, ultimately the data that, 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 you know, we talk about a lot about in the context of Facebook and Amazon and so on is data that begins in the context of market research because a lot of these companies, their, their primary interest is, is in us as consumers. And that's kind of where it begins, but then it doesn't end there because it, it sort of involves, um, a sort of, in a way, the kind of, um, the philosophy of big data is, there's, there's no limit to how much of it you can use, you know, because you don't know what you're going to use it for. So you just collect and collect and collect and collect and collect. And then as you go, you know, you'll be, you begin to spot new connections at, within it as, as, as you go in a way. So the value of it 
emerges after you after you've got it it doesn't it's not clear what the value is before you've got it so you have to just collect as much as you can that's that's why you know as people go into their kind of google sort of data files and facebook and so on they're like why the hell have they got you know the fact that i took a bus or you know whatever like they've got these extraordinary pieces of information um and it's because there's no real limit to what might be useful for to, to these companies um which i suppose at least you could say if you've got a if you've got a state agency that is tasked with understanding you know uh, poverty or health levels or something they're you know they'll have a fairly clear idea i mean this is you know this sort of form of of, of what Foucault called governmentality this sort of dates back to the 17th century of, of of governments trying to understand their populations according to particular kind of measures and indexes and and benchmarks and so on and that can be suffocating but at least there's a level of sort of there's a sense of you, you kind of know in advance what what they're trying to find out and why, which is not at all the case with the likes of Google and, 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 and Amazon and so on. Now, of course, governments could probably do a lot more big data analysis as well. It's just that they're, the moment they're utterly dependent on the private sector to do so and partly on these shady companies like SCL and Palantir and so on, who, who sort of sit there between the state and the, and the market kind of um, sort of, you know, bringing, to, bringing the two together. Mm hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking with Will Davies, a political economist and author of The Happiness Industry and The Limits of Neoliberalism, about Facebook, surveillance, and data monopolies. This is what you get when you Well, we're moving into a kind of, uh, you know, for lack of a better metaphor, I suppose, a church and state situation where they're not broken up, uh, you know, from corporate to uh corporate big data to what the government uses or what the government is um, mm -hmm. in front of corporate data. Um, you know, these things, uh, I think for, for me, the problem is they begin to blend in such a way that I don't quite have any clue as a citizen, as a, as a, as a yeah. person to think what in the world does government do? <laughs> you know, when, yeah. so when, if I'm, if I'm sitting here in my municipality, that's, it's still a local enough thing, which I'm sure they're, they use data also, of course, but, uh, we yeah. also, uh, I think, uh, feel like we know that, uh, when we think locally, we think of, uh, government and perhaps the annoyance of certain business developments, but we also think of keeping our roads open and our sewers and things of this nature. And, but when yeah. we talk nations, obviously we're generally, at least in this country, talking about a kind of militarized imperial, you know, process across the globe. Uh, and that, that loses me. Not, not that I don't understand it, but just that I, I can't find a way to think about this in any, um, calm, rational way. I just want well, to say no to it, right? I, as you say, yeah. I don't want any of this out there. Yeah, I mean, this is where I mean, the you know, where, where the where the kind of where the logic of you know what I'll, if, originally, if you had to sort of drill down, what is the sort of logic of the the, the, the sort of Amazon, Google, Facebook approach to data? As I say, it, it begins with the mentality of market research, right. and then it kind of expands rapidly and sort of kind of almost infinitely from there because there's nothing that they don't want to know. Right, right. <laughs> um, they're not like, that's irrelevant. Nothing's irrelevant. That's the problem with these right, companies. Right, right. But where, what, where they sort of, where, the, where they have an overlap with the, with the, with the data mentality of the state is, is, is the state's security um, agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and in a sense, what, you know, they, what, what market research and, and security 
um, concerns share is this uh, desire to want to kind of spot patterns as they're emerging in real time, you know, to try and be the first to know someone. You know, market research is all about speed of, of picking up on something new. It's similar to running a political campaign as well. You know, like, um, I mean, you know, Trump's campaign was quicker on to knowing that what was going on in the Midwest than Clinton's campaign was. You know, it's sort of being ahead of the head of the game. Um, and picking up on something that your your opponent hasn't picked up on that's kind of what's what this is all about whether it's mm-hmm. in the commercial sector the campaigning sector or the security sector um and it turns knowledge into a kind of game of 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 cat and mouse in mm-hmm. a way it's a kind of game of of deception of disguise of 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 snooping of sensing detecting monitoring these are not things that historically have gone on in you know other domains of expertise in universities in in the social sciences or statistics or this sort of thing these are these are things that have tended to be done with great secrecy being led by intelligence agencies by the military um i mean in times of war states kind of take on this logic to their very heart in times of world war and i mean winston churchill used to have his you know private statistics created for him during world war ii which would sort of arrive on his desk and he was the only person who got to see them because it was such a matter of kind of national security but i think that um in a sense what what what's happening is that a kind of a a wartime mentality is flooding the commercial sector in this sense in this spirit of secrecy of wanting to be able to kind of spy, snoop, sense, detect, and have this sort of real-time sensitivity to, to, to what's going on in the world. And the, the the overlap between the security sector and the commercial sector, as I mentioned, there are the, the companies, SCL, uh, which is Mercer-backed, Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's uh, baby. These are companies that sort of, you know, sort of sit on the kind of, on, on, on the crossover between the private sector and the state um, providing certain forms of intelligence services and data analytics that can be put to either commercial or or, or state services. I mean, Palantir, it, it emerged, were doing this kind of predictive policing stuff in New Orleans, where they were basically using social network analysis to to predict whether someone was a member of a gang or not. You know, not on the basis of any of their gang-like behavior. They're not on the basis of any crime or anything. They were doing it on the basis of, you know, we can, we can, from what we know from all of this data collected, we can, we can say that if someone has these attributes, they are in all likelihood a member of a gang, even if they've never, you know, held a gun in their life or broken the law, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of, you know, that, and, the, and Palantir were doing this for the, for the New Orleans police service. So, you know, this is the sort of a new type of, of a new type of, in, of, of, of sort of expertise of, 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 of political consultancy mm-hmm. and of business consultancy that is sort of all come together in rather a kind of terrifying way. And I think it's really only because of, you know, Trump's victory and, and in Britain of the, of the Brexit victory that, that people have really begun to kind of pay proper attention to this. Because, I mean, as I mentioned in the in the ALRB piece, I mean, it's, it, it, this wasn't invented by Steve Bannon or Donald Trump. I mean, this, this stuff has been emerging for a long time. Uh, but it was because... You know, as far as liberals are concerned, because the bad guys won, so right. they want to know more about how they did it, kind of thing. <laughs> right. It's time for another break. This is Paranoid Android by Radiohead, another off of OK Computer. When we come back, we'll talk with Will Davies about the ways information systems seek to both define and narrow what it means to be human. Stay with us.
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, we'll discuss the ways our activities online create a profile of likely interest in the information an algorithm offers us. The algorithm learns us, then works to define away any quirks in us so that our reactions become predictable and erase what is literally most human in us, the capacity for change through experience and empathy. Well, obviously, as you talk in in, in the piece as well, you, uh, there's a particular paragraph in in the piece that is, you know, could have just been lifted out of a Philip K. Dick story, right? The uh, Minority <laughs> Report, um, you know, which is about predictive modeling, right? It's about it's predicting when a crime will happen and and arresting and trying someone before they do it, um, and that's kind of you know what what we're I don't know how to think of it differently. Predict, predictive behavior, you know, analysis, and things of that nature are are in that world, in that world, right? Are in that field. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think first thing to just to stress is, of course, we don't know how well this stuff works. That's one of the problems with it, and this is why it invite. This is why it's really difficult to to get a hold on it. I mean, to be honest, I think in some ways in my piece, I think I I, I took this rather sort of cool tone in the piece of saying look let's not go overexcited i mean mm. this stuff is is out there it's it's kind of everywhere but let's not suddenly kind of make out that some bunch of baddies has gone and sort of rigged 2016 um and in some ways i maybe over egged that tone because i sort of you know i think particularly in the last week since i wrote the piece new things are coming out which which suggest that you know there has been some particularly decisive interventions at certain points it's difficult with with conspiracies because you know <laughs> conspiracies do exist but by their nature it's really difficult to get a handle on on on, on you know how they work and what effects they have and therefore you kind of on the one hand you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist on the other hand you don't want to say that conspiracies never work and they don't exist so it's really difficult and that's the problem we don't know how well this stuff works i mean um so when you talk about kind of you know predictive policing and and, and the sort of this kind of dystopian world i mean we know that there's a that there's a broad sort of methodological a, approach at work here which is if i spot you know a certain pattern of behavior where everybody who reads this newspaper who drives this car who you know looks at these things online who da 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 uh, i can also predict you know something else about them i can predict what kind of coffee they drink or something like that i mean that 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 is a that is a methodology that is at large in all of this sort of stuff now that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a a, a particularly powerful methodology i mean it, it it is it must be reasonably powerful we don't know exactly how well that always works necessarily partly because it's you know as i say it's not it's it's not tested against individual cases it's not you know the fact that that um that, that, that you know one person doesn't conform to that doesn't somehow sort of sort of ruin the ruin the model it just means that you know it's a sort of guessing game in some ways um and that's really the sort of you know that's the the the, the style of rationality and of analysis that's that's in play here now it may be that it's in many cases it's oversold and mm-hmm. um and and that after all, there are people making a lot of money out of this stuff. There are people making big um, commercial contracts out of this, and of course, they want to claim that they've got some sort of unique predictive insight. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, they shroud their methods in as much secrecy as they can, and ultimately. Um, who knows exactly why people behave as they behave? I mean, that's that's been the the sort of central problem of of social science for for sort of two or three hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it, the idea that suddenly someone comes along with a load of theories lifted from physics and <laughs> some admittedly very, very large data sets that couldn't have, of course, couldn't have been around 20 years ago before people had smartphones and platforms and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that is going to solve fundamental questions of why do people behave as they do and why do people identify with the things they identify with and get moved to do things that they get moved to do things is a kind of naive marketing pitch for this industry so so it's really difficult i mean i think we have to sort of you know be afraid but also also retain our skepticism and our and our, and our critical distance from this stuff as well This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking with Will Davies, a political economist and author of The Happiness Industry and The Limits of Neoliberalism, about Facebook, surveillance, and data monopolies. This is what you get when you Well, I think also you have, I, I, to me, again, you have two, two pieces of this working in concert in some ways. If you can imagine that uh, the world on Facebook is your world and that that kind of, um, I guess, narrowing of the window, closing of the window, shrinking of the window of your world creates an, a particular kind of individual thinking, right, that is then more easily made predictable, Right. So on one hand, yeah. you're creating the environment that makes the individual more predictable and then finding ways to predict them. Sure. You know, that's right. I mean, I think obviously, and, and, and as, as the sort of data points increase, I mean, I have this one of the one of the chapters in my book, The Happiness Industry is mm-hmm. called Living in the Lab. And it's basically about how the logic of the laboratory has sort of flooded society. Right. Um, I mean, this is also what someone like Gilles Deleuze called the society of control, where, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to kind of restrict someone to an institution such as a you know a prison or a laboratory or a hospital any longer in order to observe them you can observe them as they go about their everyday life in you know out in the open Mm -hmm. um and um of course that 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 certainly generates more and more data um i mean in terms of that sort of closing down of the world i mean i suppose that's that's right i mean whether whether it makes people more predictable it probably does but in a sense in a sense what's What's more important about it, I think, in terms of the logic of this sort of thing, is it's not that it makes people more predictable, but that the the company can learn more um, from their behavior. So, the, you know, there is this sort of the capacity to learn. And as as you throw in machine learning and artificial intelligence, this this mm-hmm. sort of is going to get more and more powerful. But it's the capacity to to learn from us uh, and to enrich the intelligence of 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 private entities um or could be security entities but we're talking about private commercial mm-hmm. ones primarily but you know it's the capacity for their for the, the everything we do is in some ways a sort of donation to their stock of intelligence right. um right. and you know they of course they you know their clients want us to be predictable they you know facebook wants to go and say to advertisers yeah we know how to get people to click on this we know how to people to get people to buy your trainers and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But ultimately what Facebook wants is to sort of turn our lives into a sort of, you know, into a sort of learning exercise for Facebook so that Facebook's sort of social intelligence, its 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 grasp of, of humanity is just kind of increasing and increasing and increasing. So Facebook is a sort of, is a stock of um, 
well, it's it's a stock of data first and foremost, but it's a it, the assumption is that, that data can be turned into into intelligence that can actually be right. sort of marketized in some way. It's working right into the uh, when the, the machine of the market in some sense uh, to create the the uh, a market that that understands itself, I guess. You know, so Zuckerberg is is the the god of the, at the top of this particular hill. Yeah, I mean, I think Facebook is is it's a bit. I mean, Mark, I mean, the way Amazon is sort of more the, the mm-hmm, case of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon. Um, I mentioned Frank Pasquale earlier, who's a who's a legal scholar. I mean, he's he's written really interesting stuff. Um, I really recommend his work. And I mean, he has this 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 um, he has a he has a blog post, I think it is, or an essay, which where he talks about Amazon taking on what he calls functional sovereignty, which basically mm-hmm. he points out, you know, Amazon is, is is shifting from the status of a company to the status of a regulator. Mm-hmm. So that Amazon is is not, and this is again, people like Nick Sinichek in his book Platform Capitalism have written about this kind of thing as well. That the logic of the platform is not to be a, a sort of provider in a market; it's to it's to provide, um, it's to be the market and right. to be the you know, and to be the condition of possibility in a way. And obviously Uber would be another example of this or something like that. That's a great phrase. I'm going to stop you and, and say it out loud to myself right now. To be, what did you say, the condition of possibility? Condition of possibility. It's actually at, um, it's, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm showing my old philosophy training because this is, this is straight from Immanuel Kant. That's awesome. Philosophy, so. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's time for our final break. One more from Radiohead. This is No Surprises. Stay tuned for more on data capitalism in the university when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. For our final segment of Facebook Breakup, we'll turn to the university and its role in the latest version of our surveillance state. Under the sway of the high-impact mentality of science research, universities seek to be in the know and on the bleeding edge of policy research. This has done real damage to scholarship which has no specific monetary application like any humanities discipline. The very study which interrogates human value construction and sites of oppression. Uh, 
Let's uh, let's uh, do a quick pivot if if we can to um, uh, not too long ago you did a, a a panel called the role of experts in an age of populism and I wanted to yeah. pivot here to that panel only through the the sort of um, academic space that's within this Cambridge Analytica. Um, uh, and Facebook situation here where you have people doing research, uh, on, uh, on campus or in academics and, and being used and, and utilizing that information as part of the, these, uh, these institutions go, going and, and being used by a Facebook or, or the government as well. And, and here is, um, you know, at some point you talk about the difference, the distinction between a university that's, you know, searching for truth or, you know, trying to do things that we, we think of the university doing and one that's, that's doing something else entirely high impact, fast turnover, engaged in the world, political. Mm. And that's, that, that seems to me a, a very important. I don't know if it's a great distinction in this particular, in the town that I'm in. Well, it's, a, it's an important distinction because it's, you know, one of the major things that happen here is that we have a university. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, this has been the, the uh, universities have, have been under pressure for, for, for decades, really, to sort of provide knowledge. I mean, in the States, there's a long tradition of this dating back to kind of, you know, first business schools and so on, Wharton in the 1870s and so on. But I think that, you know, increasingly outside of the business school world as well, there's been growing pressure for, for universities to to kind of what we have this kind of obsession with delivering impact and um you know delivering kind of to the knowledge economy and uh kind of creating skills that can achieve kind of market value and knowledge can achieve market value and and i think that in a way i mean i suppose you know the debate you refer to was 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 partly kind of thinking about this sort of post-truth panic that's mm-hmm. kind of swept the, the 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 kind of liberal democratic world um and I suppose the thing is that, you know, it's very important to, 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 to sort of think back to what, what we, you know, what is it that's trustworthy about, um, scholars and experts? And, um, of course, you know, it's partly, I, I think that, the, you know, in a sense, if we want to ha- retain some core, the sort of Western traditions of, 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 of ideals of truth that kind of begin with Plato kind of, a, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, very important that we don't also expect the same people to be kind of ambulance chasing you know sort of like constantly trying to kind of come up with the latest thing and to be constantly trying to outcompete each other and ultimately and this is actually what my um plug for my next book which is it's going to be out in the states with norton in early 2019 but i mean ultimately i i might this book is um in some ways it's about the, the contrast between two ways of valuing knowledge we can either value knowledge because it's the basis of consensus, which is a kind of pragmatist kind of ideal, I suppose. Or we can value knowledge because it's fast. Um, and one really is the kind of is a traditional knowledge that that it, that that, that is, belongs in peacetime. The second, I argue, is that you know the the origins of the of the desire to know things as quickly as possible in in, in modernity is actually kind of derived from the military. So and and of course it you know it's it's present in the commercial sector as well. But this idea that universities should constantly be competing each other against each other in terms of innovation and in terms of commercial spin-offs and this sort of stuff in some ways it's kind of hollowing out the capacity of knowledge to produce a shared world that has a public quality and that 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 that, that can potentially forge consensus and i think a, a less philosophical way of putting that is that i'm not sure that you know clearly you know your average um sort of populist or or, or nationalist um voter um, doesn't really think that, you know, 
someone working at Harvard is 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 kind of neutral. They think of them as oh, well, you're just a kind of East Coast liberal sort of thing. Uh, and I think there's a serious problem. And you're probably quite rich and privileged as well. Uh, and I think there's a very serious problem about the status of universities that universities need to to retain some. It's not that they can't get involved in politics as such, but I think that they've become quite compromised in certain ways by sort of allowing themselves to become increasingly seen as sort of commercial actors, as uh, technocrats for policymaking and so on. So I think that in a way, you know, we need to sort of safeguard the idea of a, of a university as, as a critical institution. When I say critical, I mean something that is able to stand outside of, of commercial logics and, 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 and technocratic policy logics and to observe them with a critical eye, but not to be sort of compromised. I mean, you know, the financial crisis, in, particularly in the States, was, was flooded with with you know um, perverse incentives and 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 distorted interests by virtue of people who were basically making lots of money on the basis that they were offering an objective neutral view of things. Now that just completely debases the very ideal of there being a kind of an objective neutral view of the world. And if we want to have an objective neutral view of the world, and we can argue about whether that's even possible, but if we want to at least hold up that kind of sort of ideal that there are people who can sort of look on and observe and describe in a in a in a in a in a legitimate way. We can't also have those people making huge amounts of money from acting as consultants to one party in the game, if you see what I mean. So I think that there's a sort of universities have kind of lost their way and have contributed to some of this kind of crisis of truth by wanting to act like sort of, you know, business consultants and so on. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking with Will Davies, a political economist and author of The Happiness Industry and The Limits of Neoliberalism, about Facebook, surveillance, and data monopolies. This is what you get when you Yeah, that, uh, you know, you question where that comes from. Uh, here Again, here at the Indiana University is a board of trustees that appointed by a Republican governor, uh, all of them business, uh, people for the most part, uh, as well as having a, a president whose goal is to, as you, I think you said earlier, uh, innovate and make, make possible products even. So, yeah. you know, it's not that, you know, we, we talk about the university as this entity as if it makes, you know, it, it can make these decisions, but there, there are boards and presidents and these people are often captive to the business environment. Uh, captured by these same, same same forces that are that we're talking about already. Yeah, and if you, I mean, uh, I know you've had Philip Morawski on your show mm -hmm. before, and he's, you know he's one of the the leading kind of uh, sort of historians and critics of of neoliberal thought. And I mean his his work on particularly his book Science Marts, which is about the kind of commercialization of, of of the scientific establishment over over the last sort of forty years or so. I mean in there he shows very real evidence of, of how this actually undermines the quality of science in, in certain respects in terms of, you know, people over patenting, people patenting too quickly, um, people making exaggerated claims for the kind of knowledge that they've got. I mean ultimately scholarship is is slow um, and sometimes it's expensive and sometimes it doesn't deliver any tangible re commercial return you know mm -hmm. but that you know you have to you have to sort of this is a question about about um 
the extent to which if you if you if you if, if a society claims to be concerned about truth which we all claim that we are at this precise moment and we've got a chronic liar in the white house and all that kind of stuff then you have to put your money where your mouth is and you know invest in people who are going to do research which doesn't necessarily pay some you know create some kind of unicorn startup in silicon valley within sort of five years or something like that so i mean i think that's the that's the sort of broader politics of this as far as i'm concerned do you want to turn real quick and just uh, tell me a little bit about the book you've edited the economic science fictions yeah this is something that i mean uh, probably began about three three and three or four years ago now but um it was me um and uh, a couple of colleagues talking about kind of in a sense what why is the economy and economics so devoid of of creativity i suppose and of imagination in terms of we all talk about, you know, you can redesign products, you can redesign cars, but why can't we just sort of, you know, reimagine, reinvent economic institutions? And, and, and this kind of led on to a conversation about, you know, this, in a sense, can we do economic science fiction? So this book came together. It's called Economic Science Fictions. Um, and it's uh, a mixture of economists writing about science fiction. It's got a, there's a, a leading uh, British, oh, he's actually South Korean based in the UK, economist called Harjun Chang, who has a, a piece in there about economics and science fiction. It's got some stuff, some bits of science fiction about alternative money forms, alternative forms of value. It's also got some um, uh, people who are scholars of, of in economic anthropology and sociology who are interested in things like money and, and, and corporate forms and governance structures, writing about, well, how would we you know, reimagine some of this. Why? What role do these things play in our understanding of the future? How could we imagine a different future in which money did something different, or ownership structures did something different? And ultimately, I suppose it's really what um, someone like Frederick Jameson, who's written a lot about the importance of science fiction to the modernist imagination, um, and others like China Mieville, and and I mean Ursula Le Guin was in some ways the sort of uh, the, the the kind of icon of this in in, in recent decades, uh, but is is that in a way um, the ability to to resuscitate hope of of of, of collective transformation depends on the capacity to start seeing the future as something that is different from the present. And in a way, what Jameson says about postmodernism, but in a way, you could say the same thing about neoliberalism because they're ultimately coincidental and, and arguably the same thing. Is that you know postmodernism is a sort of he, he says it replaces time with space so that instead of like there being a different future you just have sort of different kind of theme parks and and cities and spaces that you can go to and that ultimately everything's going to remain the same but just in different distributions of in, in space and so in a way i suppose thinking back to those sort of jameson insights is that you know that in a way economic science fiction is, is partly about trying to resuscitate a, a type of utopian imagination which which sort of gets people to dream a bit and and to stop seeing the present as as natural and inevitable in some ways. But that's not to say that it's trying to push any particular ideolo ideological alternative, but I think it's it's partly fun, you know. I mean, <laughs> hopefully there's stuff in there that's, that's good to read, but I think it also, it's an attempt to try and smash together different fields that, I mean, economics is so sort of, Sort of prudish and takes itself so seriously most of the time that you know it, it's, it needs, needs to be shaken up a little bit that's our show we'll close with a rendition of Radiohead's exit music for a film by the Brad Meldow trio Thanks to Will Davies, author and political economist at Goldsmiths, University of London. 
His books are The Happiness Industry and The Limits of Neoliberalism. Next week, Joan Hawkins guest hosts and is joined by Jenny McComas, a curator of the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University. The topic is provenance, the chronology of the ownership, custody, or location of a historical object, primarily a means of authentication and a way to establish an agreed-upon, because documented, past. The hoax is no new invention, but the spread of false information, interest politics, and bigoted opinion online has a breadth unequaled in history. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited tonight's program. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.